They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. But the bye, 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 bye. But the bye, 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 bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. So, you have you've you've probably seen Will if you've been to any of the running awards or running shows or pretty much anything. Um, but our next guest, before they set up Race Nation, which is the, the booking platform for races, he uh, he actually was a great British bobsled. So we've got him on the podcast to talk partly about that, but also to following at the run show, we had a, a panel of race directors. And I thought it was of all of the talks we had, the one that was actually the most insightful because it really gave us a view on what was going on with so many different races. So to get to get on the podcast, speak about that, we've got the wonderful Will Golda. Whee! How you doing? Very well, very well. How are you? Yeah, good. good. Well, I've uh, for the listeners, Facebook is down, so if we don't ask your question, and so is Instagram. That is why. But, yeah, <laughs> we're good. not. We're not suggesting that do banners have brought Facebook down with your questions, <laughs> although it's entirely possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. What should, should, should we be with Bob Slate? Because we've never discussed it other than pool running, <laughs> uh, which we've probably discussed too much. But um, yeah, how how does a British person become a Bob Slayer? Good question. Um, essentially, for my my journey was quite classic. And you mentioned cool runnings, and uh, again, we're, we're there. I, I was a sprinter prior to getting involved in Bob Slate. I could run quick and, and you know what I was I was one of those kids at school that was just very fortunate I, I, I could turn my hand at most sports I really enjoyed sports I could I could run quickly but I wasn't quite quick enough to ever make it um what kind of time are we talking that it was mainly the 100 I think I'd run the 100 in we'd have to get under 11 in all our in all our testing but yeah. i think um 10 8 was 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 my ten, side okay yeah yeah so nice it was it was quick but not quick enough you, you know yeah. um and and i think from from there i had the fortunate aspect of meeting somebody involved with british bobsleigh who said look pretty much you're quick but not quick enough um yeah. don't dream of doing anything in athletics um why not try out for bobsleigh and uh turned up and did some testing with them and I was I was only 18 at the time actually, um, so I was quite quite young, especially for the sport. Um, Bob say is 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 typically either the the athletics graveyard that it comes across, or yeah. um, a military sport where you know you hone your skills over a long a long time. And at that at that point when I was getting involved, it was um, it, it was very much on on the military side, and and uh, so I I got involved as as a civilian, but tested part of their crew um and and beat some of their current current athletes so i um essentially got my spot there and then was fortunate that the sport got funding and more and more athletes got involved outside of 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 the routes that they had before then so um bobsleigh evolved into to quite a competitive sport and did they is it with i suppose summer olympic sports probably don't suffer this in the same way as maybe winter olympics as, as a british person you know, you you said that someone from the bobsleigh team came and approached you do they pretty much have to do that with pretty much all the sports in that are they are they constantly looking for someone go oh do you know what 
use him a bit of a wing nut, you'll be perfect for Luge. Uh, you know, because there's there's a lot of yeah. things that there's not a clear path into those mm. things unless of course you you've, you've you've done it in your family or or you have people approaching so is is yeah. that generally how it works the, the the people in the committee go out and find people that they think are mm. have the right skill set to be able to compete in those sports i think in in the past absolutely um but but certainly from my from my generation you know i joined the squad in 2010 actually they run a pretty successful talent id process now all funded by UK Sport and the Lottery. Um, you've got the likes of SportsAid and, and TAS as well, who all contribute to British sport and the success of it. But certainly Sport England, um, UK Sport, the Lottery, they now fund you know, quite, quite a, a robust talent ID process now where essentially anybody can turn up and, and British Bobsleigh, British Skeleton, who are a combined federation, run quite a successful talent ID now. So you, essentially they bring hundreds of potential athletes in some that may just say, hey, I fancy a go at this. I've seen it um, and, and and want to see if I can test out. Others will be invited along. You, again, in the bob, bobsleigh world, the rugby sevens, your your sprinters, lots of, you know, a lot of your power sports will, will, will have people turn up there and say, actually, we're running a talent ID process. Athletes then go through many different stages of, of hitting hitting certain numbers, hitting certain power outputs, hitting certain speeds and sprinting. Um, and they essentially just get it down to that, that, um, that finer, finer group that they then put into a, a crew and a squad. And, and how, how closely would you say it correlates? It's like power or speed. Cause I mean, if you look at sprinters, say you had someone like Christophe Lemaitre, who's a bit of an old name, but he's the only really thin slight sprinter I can think of would he be able to do something like um Bob say because of the speed or do you need to still have you know because you're pretty stocky build do you need yeah. both I, th I wasn't though that's the thing when I finished school I was 73 kilos and and skinny you know I was like school cross-country runner um and uh and I wasn't but I could also run quite quickly again at that that age so then they put they put the weight on me um, and, and certainly for bobsleigh, you know, a, a bobsleigh weighs just under 300 kilos, you, mm. you know, as, as a four man sled. And so you've got to you've got to have the strength and power to get that thing going at the start. Um, so as a bobsleigh, it's it's the power to weight ratio, um, that, which is why it mixes so well with sprinters. But in all honesty, a lot of sprinters are also too light um mm. you know we, we we've got some phenomenal sprinters joel joel Firon's been in the crew and actually got an olympic bronze medal in sochi with, with the guys um you know he was he's the i think he's the third fastest 100 meter runner in british history um and running under 10 seconds but he he would do well mm. on the back of a sled on the back of a four man but um if you were to put him on the side handles or in a two man some sometimes the 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 sled is, is is has to be very heavy because that sprint that the, the make someone like Joel is also very light. Um, mm. So that's why we we find ourselves depending also where you sit in the sled. I, I was the driver, so I was at the front. It was my job to to steer us down the course, but I was the one that would get in first. So um, giving it a good good shove at the start was important, um, and I had the luxury of of being able to run quick. So therefore, some of the heavy guys, the, the really strong guys on the side and on the back, um, you, you know, it was always quite nice to, to try and run quicker than them. But um, yeah, it, it, depending on where you sit in the sled as well, 
you would have mm. uh, different requirements for for power outputs and how far you can run and how quick you can run. So what is that? What is that? What are the success factors then? What what makes what makes you uh, a, a good bobsled team? I mean, is it from what you're saying there? Is it essentially one in in the kind of the push off to? I don't know what the terms are, but in, in that like in that moment, I mean, or, or is it possible to gain? speed and make time up when you're going down the court yeah, yeah. Kind of how, how is it's, that broken down the best way to think about it is formula one on ice so if you take a formula one car it's made up of a decent driver a decent crew and and, and a good car if you've got those you've got a chance of winning the race and and it's the same in bob say you need a decent start you need a good driver and you need a good sled um and and if you don't have one of those three things it's very difficult to win a race but also depending on the track you go to, again, similar to Formula One, different tracks suit different makeups of crew and start. So mm. some starts might be really quite steep at the start and therefore it's, it's borderline impossible to be able to run long. So actually then what you do is you put your really strong guys that can give it a good shove and literally just get in because, because gravity will take you down. Mm. Other tracks have a, a have the, the start isn't as steep. So therefore you can run longer. So again, you, the makeup of your crew um, so, so in answer to, to your question, it, it, it's, it's a combination of actually having, having all three, but certain tracks in the world, you can literally win or lose a race at the start. Right. And is there a weight limit on the total package yeah. of runners? And there is, yeah. okay. And that's where Cool Runnings um, throws throws a, a few curveballs with regards to the rules because with the egg. essentially, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 it could have uh, been a hollow egg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the heavy egg or the uh, or the weights that were hidden at the front. Actually, now you actually have a maximum weight limit. So your sled has to be a certain weight, and then yeah. your your crew can be up to a maximum weight. And so, obviously, being a gravity sport, the heavier you are, the faster you're going to go down the hill once yeah. it's going um and and so you you will find that teams put weights in the sled now to take them right up to that maximum weight um because so they go down the sled so they go down the hill quicker um but the, the downside of that is when you're putting weights in you've got to push it at the start so it's all finding that that fine balance um which is which is why you'll always find the the guys um to be absolutely massive you know even for when i when i was obviously training and I was full time, um, the, the, I managed to put on some, some good size and some good weight, but the, I was one of the smallest in the team still, you know, the, the guys are absolutely huge. Some of these guys, um, strength, the power, um, and, and then, like I said, the speed that they take with them. And how reactive is the steering for you? Are you, do you have to know the course off by heart and you're almost going through like a rally driving motions or are you actually reacting to what you see? You absolutely need to know the course, uh, every inch of it, because, um, in all honesty, anything can happen from snow and fogging up of your visor to the three blokes behind you, having an absolute mare getting in pretty much upside down, grabbing all, all parts of, of limbs, just trying to <laughs> hold on. And, and so therefore steering can become second thought. Um, but the, so, so you need to know every inch, but then after, after that, you, you, you obviously you can see where you're going as a driver. Um, but it, it massive reaction time training was again, part of everything that we did because, you know, it's some tracks you're traveling at 148 kilometers an hour. Um, and so therefore by the time you've seen it and thought it, you've gone past it. Um, mm. 
and so you're always thinking and looking a long way ahead of, uh, of, of where you've been and, um, and and obviously therefore steering essentially a little bit in advance to, to try and keep the sled on either the racing line or from, from crashing. And do the what people kind of, behind have anything to do? Oh, sorry. Say that again, David. Wait, oh yeah, do the people behind have anything to do once they're in? Yeah, they, they can play, so certainly when it's going wrong, they can play a big part in, in certainly um, the more experienced crews will, will ride with the sled so that, um, you know, again, you, you can take a sled that gets up to 630 kilos with all the blokes in it. Um, if if they get caught off guard and they get thrown the wrong direction, you can see that that would affect the the, the line of the sled going down the track. So they have a they have a big part to play in riding with it um, going down. Uh, and similarly, if they feel that it's potentially on two runners are about to go over, three guys giving it a good shove, then the the uh, the other way can can be the difference between going going over and uh, and going not. Hmm. What are you going to say? Do I can't remember what. I was... Oh, that was it. It was about injuries. Because I was thinking. When you, it seems like it's the kind of sport that if you, that the injuries that you have are either very minor or absolutely horrific. Like what kind? Yeah. What? Because <laughs> you always see like you know famous crashes and everything else like that. But what what kind of injuries do you are you likely to pick up doing doing that? I I, I was fortunate. A lot of my injuries came during summer training and and really when you're. Um, again, like I said, when, when I left school, I was 73 kilos. So I had to put a lot of weight on. I put the best part of 20, 25 kilos on me, um, weight wise. And, and so that was again, body adapting to that. So, so a lot of my injuries came from summer training and, and really just as my body was adapting, but with actually on the track, you know, bobsleigh is, um, it's in the middle of the three winter sports. So you've got skeleton head first going down the hill. Um, mm -hmm. they say that that's the easiest with regards to obviously on difficulty level um actually it's where the british have been the most successful in, in having just literally a history of olympic medal um why, why are we why are we particularly good at that yeah their talent id program is is very very good um and and also um their their r d and the technology and the sleds was quite advanced and and um uh, so are they, they stealing like team sky and formula and mclaren and stuff like that's tech or yeah, there, there was a, there was a big combination. Certainly in the run up to the Sochi Games, actually both British bobsleigh as well. We worked with McLaren um, and and their applied technologies to work in all their wind tunnels, and they actually built a a new sled and and aerodynamically it was it was meant to be um, you know one of one of the absolute best innovations that that had seen, but um, it didn't quite work on ice, and I think they're they're still making developments of it now, but. Um, Certainly, we learn a lot off the Germans and the Swiss. What did and... they build it on for then? What, yeah. they... what was it going to run on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we didn't realise you ordered it on ice, guys. Yeah, oh, yeah. how stupid yeah. of us. I, I think it was one of those things where, again, taking um, taking so much mechanical expertise, but then putting it on on ice. Ice mm. is it's something that we're not necessarily used to massively in the UK, certainly bobsleigh. Um, and then the G-forces of, 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 of all of that, you know, I, I, I drove that sled and, and the Gs that you receive in, in a bobsleigh can be in excess of five or six Gs. Uh, and so the makeup of that on ice, where essentially the sled is, is borderline skidding out of control at all times, um, mm. I think... There wasn't really a computer system in the world that could model it at that point. 
And so whatever worked, the wind tunnel aspect was was phenomenal. We learned a lot from that and we, you know, we, we, we took a lot from it. But um, the transferring that from from a, a lab and a computer and, yeah. and a wind tunnel onto ice. Um, and also, again, like I said, you've got so many makeups of it from the guys pushing on the side. All you need is the guys on the side can be the best part of 120 kilos. Um, so all you need is one of them to slip, to get in wrong, to do something, again, that a computer system can't model. And all of a sudden it can throw throw the sled off for the next three or four corners. So, yeah, there's there's a lot that we take. Like I said, skeleton is um, notoriously supposed to be the, the easier one that Bob stays in the middle. And then you've got lose, which is against feet first, supposed to be the hardest. And, and those guys are are borderline crazy. So so injury wise, you see a lot of injuries in lose on the course because they they just can't see where they're going, essentially. Um, and, and, um, I've seen some pretty horrific ones of those. I've seen a snap leg. Um, I've seen, seen all sorts. Um, Bob stays in the middle myself. Um, I had a compression injury where essentially I, I had a, a stress fracture of my spine through the sled flipping over. And I took, as the driver, you've obviously got your head up and the guys in the back have got their heads in. So I took the impact on the top of my helmet. Oh. Um, and I, I was down by half an inch. I was six two, but I was when I went to see the, uh, the car, I was six one and a half. Yeah, Whoa. and uh, took a bit of a bit of working out and and um, and fixing Where up. Where does that but, come from? Is that is that in cartilage or? In... Yeah, just I again. I, I I all I know is that I was I was hunched. I was in pain, and um, yeah. and and I tried to stand upright, and and it just wasn't happening. So and how um, how did how did you come back from that? Like, were you able to? just get straight back in and ride with the same like aggression or yeah i, th I think um again at, at the time the sport was funded so i, I had a, a a pretty pretty cool ride and a good fun ride through 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 bob say in the basis that i i joined the squad as they got uk sport lottery funding and so we had the luxury of team doctors and physios traveling with us at, at that time so yeah. they they would work Tirelessly, tirelessly through the night just to get you back fit um and i think um from, from from memory there i had a few days just sitting in so i wasn't pushing at the start in in mm. the training so i'd just sit in just to keep keep learning the track and the practice and, and, and in some uh, ways you were more dense you were probably a, a better athlete by that yeah. half an inch <laughs> yeah no i got it back they got me back thank god yeah it's, <laughs> okay. it's, a, it's a lot to be losing out on so uh, yeah, they got they got it back. Thank thank God. And uh, yeah, we're there. But um, it was yeah, it was one of those times where you just have to see it. And 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 there have been some other horrific accidents in in bobsleigh mm. from um, people moving over it again um, in the British team and 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 others. Um, but Luge certainly is is the worst for me. You would never. You'd I would love to give skeleton a go um, and lie on the train and have a go down. I've never actually done it. A lot of my friends have. Um, mm. Lose, you'd never, you couldn't pay me enough money to go and try lose. I don't think it's just uh, I, absolutely bonkers. And I guess with lose as well, it's probably quite useful to have a small package and small feet as well. So you can just have a clean view straight down your body. Are those the factors that the uh, athlete identification <laughs> program looks at? Yeah, you've just found <laughs> British. British Luge, British Luge rewriting their selection document now. Their, their talent <laughs> yeah, ideas changed. And... Well, yeah. I'm afraid I'm a size ten, or else I'd have been straight in. I'd have been. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
And what would you, from, we, we've, everyone I assume who's listened to this podcast has watched Cool Runnings. Like what other misnomers and, and falsehoods are there from there that people might take as being fact? Um, I, I guess the biggest one is one, uh, first of all, um, the sled falling apart down the track. That actually can happen, and I've seen it happen, and I've had it happen. Um, where not not as bad as that, but you know where the sled comes apart, and and that's yeah. why they crash. Um, that that can happen literally because of of every of of the rattle and the speed and the jeeps. But I think the 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 biggest misdemeanor would be more. Um, you know when they do crash, they pick it up like absolute yeah. heroes, and they put the sled on their shoulder, yeah. and they they walk out to the clapping and and the cheering. Um, <laughs> unfortunately. It doesn't happen like that. Um, you do draw a crowd, um, and and um, notoriously. Are you, you going to say you did it and no one clapped you? You just no, no. alone. I thought you were going to say, "Oh, it's impossible to carry it." Well, what you're actually saying is that just no one will support you carrying it. They'll just yeah. they'll, they'll it's, it's, you. genuinely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gen- genuinely, it's um, it's one of those things when you crash a sled. It's such. Uh, it's such a pain for the track because they have to shut the track. They have to check all the gouge marks. They have to do everything that you'll find a few track workers run down and they'll check that you're okay. As soon as you say they're okay, they're more, it's, it's more important to get you off the ice so that they can check it down and repair it. Than it um, than, <laughs> so, so but, but also it would absolutely be, uh, it would be impossible to pick that sled up and put it on your shoulders. It would be. Um, you do draw, you do draw a crowd. So, so the crowd would be there, but they would see you probably limping out uh, and and pushing it rather than uh, than carrying it. Um, it's it's a uh, the the bottom of a sled. I, I notoriously, I, I had a sponsor that came to me and said, I, I would like to sponsor you, and and we would be delighted to support you. Um, but um, can we sponsor the bottom of your sled? <laughs> That's not a vote of uh, confidence, is it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> So these guys are literally going for the photo opportunity um, of, of me upside down down the track rather than uh, that, there you go. That's a great. Who, who was the sponsor? It was Nat West. Nat, what, you'd have thought it'd be someone with like a, like um, piles cream or something, <laughs> yeah. something that would actually. Well, Nat West are close. <laughs> <laughs> and is the sport um, like, what is? the general view on cool runnings from the sport like do they see it as a a good thing that it, it it's peaked interest or it peaked interest back then or is it almost this curse now that everyone talks about it compares you to it no i i, th- I personally i think you know even growing up as a kid i absolutely love cool runnings and i didn't for one second watch cool runnings and say i want to be a bobslayer or thought i'd be a bobslayer i just i just absolutely loved it um from, from that side i think to to the sport Listen, I think it is just what it is. I think um, people have grown up with it and um, the amount of times you get asked for a lucky egg, trust me, people carry it when the first time <laughs> they turn up on, on the track. Um, you'll see a lot a lot of the development crews and that they'll turn up with, with certain things. But um, I think personally that Cool Runnings has been good for the sport you know, because a lot of it is actually true as well. Even where it's filmed in Canada and in Calgary, um, mm. all of that actually exists. And so when you do watch it, knowing what you can see, you actually see a lot of truths in there, even the, the sled shed where they store all the sleds and in, in, in cages and where they have all their conversations about uh, the naming of the sled. I think what they call it, Tallulah, when they named it to the, the sled. 
Um, you can see I know too much already, but um, yeah, a lot of it, there's a lot of truths. There's a lot of truths there. So I think I think it's been great for the sport, to be honest. And the best and the best way to train for bobsled in um, bobsleigh in a non uh, uh, sort of country where they don't have like snow and ice is a go kart going down a hill. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a, that's another misdemeanor. That is um, actually, did you know the the steering in the sled is is very similar to that. You pull left, it goes left. You pull right, it goes right. An old school go kart with some some runners. Um, no, British British Bob says based up at the University of Bath, the sports training village. Ah, okay. And there's a there's a push track there, so you can we can practice all the starts. It's about 120, 130 meters long. Um, so all of the start is practiced there. But um, driving-wise, it's a lot of reaction time training. It's uh, and then essentially from October until March every year, you would always be away practicing and competing at, at different tracks around around the world. What's, the, what's like the hardest track? Like, what's the one that, that you know is kind of the one that everyone's just like it's it's an absolute devil. absolutely nails. Yeah, it's, um, a, a couple. The Vancouver track that they built for 2010 um, actually was was notoriously very difficult um, to the point where some of the athletes named one of the corners 50-50 because literally no matter how good the best drivers in the world were, you, they just never knew if you were coming out of there. Um, but the, what, then um, the, the Americans have got a track up in Lake Placid, um, which again, notoriously very, very difficult. And then the Germans have got a track in Altenburg. Even the name Altenburg is just... It's, it's a, it's, it just gives me shivers. Um, it was built in, it was in East Germany. They built it, it was built in complete secret yeah. when... Um, it behind, would be East Germany, wouldn't it? We kind of, we all yeah. assumed it was East Germany. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it was built from essentially the hardest corner of every track in the world they <gasps> picked. Um, and they just built this track that was absolutely nails in, in Altenburg. Um, and it was, and, and strangely though, I always had a really good time there, and I actually I hated going there. Don't get me wrong, but actually mm. I was I was okay there. My I I don't, I don't think I ever crashed actually in in Altenburg. Um, and I think it's literally on the basis that you were that scared um, mm. that you would always you would always be really focused or take a slightly safer line. Um, but uh, you always see if you if, if you're watching Bob say the field is, you know, a, a field at, at a, a track anywhere else in the world can be 30, 40, 50 sleds. Altenburg yeah. sometimes you'd be lucky if you were seeing 15 turn up there you know just because uh just sometimes it, it, it wasn't worth the risk to the equipment for, for some of the some of the newer yeah. sleds some of the, the less experienced drivers and and had they built that on the theory that if they, they had that at home they could train to be the best at every single corner hard corner in the world yeah essentially they were they were doing that to train the best drivers in the world because they knew that if you can if you can train three three guys to push the sled absolutely rapidly off the start and you've got a driver who has learnt skills of the hardest yeah. track in the world, turning up to any track after that doesn't scare you or it shouldn't be difficult. Um, yeah. And um, I, I don't think they were wrong. You know, the German track record in bobsleigh has been phenomenal um, in, in what they've achieved. And, you know, so have the, so have the Americans and the Canadians um, and the Swiss to it to a degree, but the Germans certainly um, they they breed some seriously good bobsleds. And do we have an artificial track somewhere, anywhere? No, no. So we've just got the um, we've got the starting wow. path. 
Yes, and then us as as British, we you got we the start. Would, That's great. Yeah. In the, <laughs> and, in the and home just, of bobsleigh, Bath. Yeah. yeah, just just for our international listeners, Bath is a city. It's not in a bath. The, the budgets are low, but <laughs> yeah. they're all not sat in a bath together. Kind of. Actually, that's another cool. Last of the famous, summer wine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, luckily you don't find us all sat in a bathtub uh, either. That's another one of cool runnings that doesn't quite happen. Um, but no, we, we would find ourselves in um, quite quite often out in uh, in Innsbruck in Austria. There's a track just quite close to the airport there in in Germany. There's three tracks, um, so we we would always base ourselves out there pre-season um, and then and then go from there. But it wasn't too much of a disadvantage to be honest because the tracks were all artificial, so they're essentially a, a big fridge. With, um, with with concrete that's that's obviously refrigerated um, with with water sprayed on it uh, and so there's only certain times of the year that they can actually freeze up the tracks mm. um, and so yeah you know that what what happens is that the, the germs the Swiss they start very young but with regards to the timing the training of, of each each year there's only a certain amount of time where it's actually economically Oh, okay. uh, possible to yeah. uh, to refrigerate the tracks. So it's not, there's we, not a uh, massive advantage then. Um, being no, it's summer training is is based reaction time training, a lot of push training at the start, um, and then obviously learning about the tracks and and you, you know which direction the, the tracks don't change. Um, it's just when you get on ice, it's then honing the skills. I think. So if you all pissed yourself on the way down that could fundamentally change the course afterwards you know freeze over a bit rougher a bit less predictable see it's my tip my tip for the top there's some notorious there's some notorious stories there as well with accidents on the way down absolutely and um and we we mentioned it before we we recorded but um in the news recently greg rutherford's now been selected yeah. for the um Will he then have to bulk up significantly as well from what we have seen of him as a triple jumper? So as long as I think, uh, yeah, I, th- I think Greg is as a, as a long jumper. Um, and again, the, the makeup of each crew and where they sit in that crew, whether they're the guy on the back or the, the, you know, the f- number four or number three can, can be a bit, bit smaller or a bit leaner. I, mm. I, I, I don't know Greg's weight, but actually I don't think he's that small. Um, I think he's actually a pretty decent, decent weight um and and so um no I, the the danger of having to bulk up so close to an olympic games um we're obviously only months out now um is 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 it just doesn't tra- transfer into into speed and, and power so you know greg will will likely stay in and around the same weight that he is um but also he's he's a phenomenal athlete in in what he's shown so far in in a lot of the testing and so they they probably wouldn't want that to change anyway to be honest and um, and do you do you get the sense that because that must be quite different going from a, a solo sport for twelve years as a pro? Well, was he pro twelve years? But let's say he's a pro for twelve years, and then suddenly being in a, a team outfit, very. Yeah. Um, Again, it's it's actually I I think a lot of a lot of the athletics um, athletes that come in and and a lot of the individuals they actually really enjoy it because it is a massive a massive team sport. Um, mm. Even even the crews, you, you know, you you'll have two or three crews within the squad, um, but everybody gets on because there's always chopping and changing between crews um, mm. and and so yeah, I, I think actually the individuals quite enjoy it um mm. and there's been a number of them o- over the years that, that have all come in and, and all done really really well i think i think certainly there's um there's a transition uh, and getting used to 
um, not being an individual and being part of a team. But um, yeah, I, I think so. Most most of them actually get it pretty quickly, to be honest. Mm. So then, Race Nation. Then moving, changing topics completely. Yeah. How did you, when you finished with Bob Say, then what? How did you transition to? Well, firstly, a brief introduction to what Race Nation is, but but, but how that came about. Yeah. So, so um, first of all, I guess the the transition from sport to to Race Nation, or or actually just to a, to a job, came. Um, for the my my first Olympic Games, Winter Games was supposed to be Sochi 2014. I had a stress fracture in my heel two weeks before that, um, put me out of the games, put me out of selection, put me out of everything. And, and um, I was 26 at the time, and I just had to I had to evaluate what what I wanted to do. Um, and so I went back home, and um, in in being at home, I I hadn't hadn't decided to retire at that point, but I I. I, I guess I'd considered it, but I hadn't decided to. Anyway, mm. I came back um, from injury. I actually came back fitter and stronger than I was pre-Olympics. So again, the 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 team that we had in British Bobsay did a phenomenal job getting me back. Uh, and then I tore my hamstring, and 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 I just thought at that point, you know, I'd come back. I'd had a stress fracture in my heel, which had put me at mm. the Olympics. It was now, um, and I actually tore my hamstring on Boxing Day um, training. And and so it was it was obviously the end of, of 2014 and um, that that Christmas, I just had to decide what, what do I do? So I decided to retire in January 2015. Um, and again, I, I was still at home and I had to try and find a job. And um, I was I actually grew up in, in Jersey. I don't know if I, I said that before, but in growing, growing up in Jersey, um, it's, it's a small place. And sometimes people know your business before you know your business. And, um, and and essentially, someone came up to me, the founder of Race Nation, a guy called Andrew Scott Miller, came up to me and said, you're that bobslayer, aren't you about to retire? And I said, well, funny you say that. I'd considered it, but I'd literally told my family and some of my close friends about mm-hmm. it. And um, he said, well, if you do, I've got this new idea and I've got this new business called Race Nation. And um, if, if, you, if you would like a job, give me a shout. And um, again, I think we're probably all used to people saying certain things and saying, and I said, okay, very kind, thank you. Anyway, uh, a couple of weeks later, I realized I really did need a job. Um, And I had an email from Andrew to say, I meant what I said, um, but actually I'm looking for this type of person. And he sent me an email saying, um, I need an ex-team GB athlete that's willing to move to the UK, open up a UK office, Um, it's very sporty, likes the world of business. And he kind of described me in this email without saying my name. Uh, and he said, can you find anyone? And so I just replied and said, look, I, I can. Uh, I know a few a few people that would be great at this job, but would you consider me applying? And he said, great, the job's yours, this and this is it. Uh, and and so that's how my my journey into Race Nation started. And then Race Nation, I guess, as, as, a, as a background, Race Nation's a sports technology company. And we, we were founded from the event and charity side of the fence. So we handle all the online entry and all the charity fundraising for, for events all over the UK. And it, and it was founded from an idea where Andrew and, and one of his colleagues, who I, I mentioned this yeah. before, they were working for Jersey Zoo. And in working for Jersey Zoo, they worked in the fundraising department, not a zookeepers. They were working in the, uh, in, in the fundraising department. And um, they put on this, this event called uh, the Durrell Dash. And it had 50 people in it. They grew it to having 
a considerable size um, and they needed online entry. So they went out to the online entry world and said, hey, can, can you guys sell our tickets and our merch? And they obviously got a lot of people saying yes. And then they said, well, we need fundraising too. How does it work? And, and they were pushed in loads of different directions to say, look, this platform will sell all your tickets and your merchandise. Mm. And this platform will do all your online giving and, and all of that. And, and Andrew and, and Rob Dudley, who, who both founded Race Nation, were, were in the technology world. And they said, look, this is great, but we need it seamless. We need it integrated. Um, and it didn't exist at the time. You know, they had APIs and integrations all mm. over the place but it didn't work so essentially what they set about building was race nation and sports giving which is our fundraising platform um to automatically integrate the whole journey so as you sign up to events you can we can automatically create the fundraising and uh in in the proof of concept started and and um really started to to show significant value to charities uh and and some charities raised over double the amount of fundraising they did for just just through using the integration rather than saying thanks for signing up mm. please go and set up a fundraising page we said thanks for mm. signing up here is a fundraising page please use it um and and we've just grown race nation as as a brand and as a platform um over the last six or so years um to now work with over 2600 events now across the uk raise millions for, for charities in, in doing so and and um as, as you've seen at, at, like you said at the start across the running shows the awards in the uk industry we're we're really trying to 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 help grow you know the, the, and support the sector not only from technology side for the organizers so that give them all the features they need but also from a fundraising aspect by doing the clever things that, that are so simple that when people look at it they say wow what you know that is genuinely so simple why didn't why didn't we think of that? Um, and and so far so good. It's it, like I said, it's growing um, really rapidly at the moment, uh, and we're we're delighted with how it's going. And kind of of those two thousand six seven hundred, what percentage would you say? Like, what is the breakdown of the different style races and organisations? You mentioned that you started off in charity, but I know that that's not the case exclusively now. You know, you do you just have race companies, um, but Giving your view of, of your your customers, like what percentage would you say a race is put on by charities? What percentage are charity races, and what percentage are, are races where they're trying to you know they couldn't care less about charity? Yeah, I, I think to start with, it was very heavily charity orientated. So charities putting on their own event, and it still it still is to it to an element. A charity's putting on their own event, it's an absolute no brainer because yeah. they know that in one platform they get everything they need. But we quickly realized, like you said, that there was event organizers and events that needed lots of features mm. that they could get some on one platform, some on the other. And, and and so I just said, look, let's just set about, we've got, it's all in-house development. So we've got developers all, all in-house building loads of cool features. And we so we've just started to build out this really powerful event management platform so that organizers can can use it from there. So so the 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 makeup of, of, of that now really, um, started heavily in charity fundraising now i'd say it's 50 50 between just event organizers and and then event charity of charitable events but quite interesting what we have started to see is because of the features we've seen a lot of organizers that were just event organizers that didn't necessarily have any charitable fundraising mm. at the start we've now started to see because it's so easy to add them in they've literally turned it on and and it's a case of of again some of them are raising a couple of thousand at a time for charities which is making a massive a massive impact to local charities 
just through us being able to ask for a small donation during the entry process or being able to give someone a fundraising page where they might raise 40 or 50 pounds. But nobody would go and set up a fundraising page just to raise 40 quid. Whereas because it's all given to them, mm. we're seeing a lot of people raise lots of, you know, a lot of people raising smaller amounts, which actually adds up to a, to a big amount for the charity. And so what we are seeing now is, is those organizers that didn't have charitable elements are now really starting to, to engage in the charity aspect because it, it's a no brainer for them. They don't have to do anything. It doesn't cost mm. them any money. And actually, I'll be honest, it gives them more exposure because the charities they get on board are now so grateful for for those for, for, for those fundraising amounts that come through even if it's a few hundred pounds they're so grateful that actually it's another marketing channel for uh, for 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 the event where it gets a bit more exposure from the charity sharing it through their channels or trying to get engagement or involvement from from their their supporters we still get more engagement just by the nature of people having to ask for money i mean that is exposure to of the, to that race for everyone who yeah. is asked to donate um, and and do you if you've got a sense of the breakdown then because we're, we're almost used to charity raising and racing has been traditionally led by marathons and so two thousand pounds you know two fifteen hundred two thousand five hundred seems to be the amount that you would raise and then this has changed actually as you say to allow people to have smaller and, and that changes expectations as well but do you get the sense of is there a, a spread of how much people typically will raise for a race or does it tend to be um, a certain regions where for these distances it tends to be these races for the, these yeah. these amounts for these types of races it tends like it, how, how does it exactly now work? that exactly that you, you you'll see the marathons will always raise loads more because again a marathon for a lot of people is is sometimes a lifetime achievement to be able to run or complete a marathon or or, or certain you know certain um, certain celebration to be able to do it whereas the shorter distances if you jump into 5k or 10k you would never find someone raising thousands of pounds or, or, or less likely to find someone raising thousands of pounds for a 5k or a 10k race but you are likely to find them maybe donating 10 or 15 pounds of their own money when registering for a charity mm. or raising or raising a small amount of money maybe 100 150 pounds through through um through friends and family but it like it, it gets to the point where so, so it's it's certainly led a lot by distance um and i think now we're seeing a lot of trail running coming in uh, you know obviously ultras is absolutely massive now um and, and again that that side of things charitable fundraising is becoming um more common but certainly the, at the marathon distance yeah is, is where you'll see the the bigger individual amounts raised um at the shorter distance also the shorter distance are, are more frequently completed by an individual, you know, you, we find people running almost every week in a 10K, um, mm. certainly every, every month, whereas the marathon could be once or twice a year. Um, and that's where, it, again, we have to be very, very clever and, and make sure that the technology allows for to capture any sort of donation because um, somebody isn't going to get a fundraising page for a 10K that they're running every month and send it around to their family saying, can you give me 10 pounds or can you give me a donation? For this 10k same one i did last month um so actually them being able to donate a five or a tenner or an entry is is that volume base which allows them to um us to really see significant significant donations come in for, for charities that all add up 
what percentage of people would you say because i hadn't even thought of that but it's that it's that little extra that you don't think about that doesn't feel painful does it um yeah. what percentage if, if a, a organization that, that is a charity there's a race there's chucking an extra fiver yeah. what percentage would typically do that pre pre-lockdown so we, we call it five pound nudge so during the entry process we essentially have a sports giving box that asks the entrant saying would you like to fundraise for a charity and they can choose the charities that that event has selected as their partners um so the entrant chooses the charity and we essentially say would you like to donate five pounds now now obviously the entrant can put that to nothing um and and we did loads of different testing in and around it but we would typically see that about pre pre-covid about 30 percent 30 32 percent of, of individuals um would donate that fiver actually what happened during lockdown and post lockdown we're seeing over 60 percent uptake in that five pound nudge um, wow. And 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 also we're seeing that the average donation, when people do choose to donate, is increasing as well um, to actually be more than a fiver. And, and so um, it's it's significant. And I, and I think again that's that's testament to the industry and, and the makeup or industry that we're in is is that people actually have genuinely realised that charities have been have been hit hit hard um, in in all of this. And so um, yeah, to see a, over sixty percent uptake of of what we call the five pound nudge. Um, mm. is 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 massive at the moment, especially considering that pre-COVID and it, it was it was it was half that at least. And actually, in, in terms of the impact of the budget of a race, I mean, I, I assume most of the charities do it for the, the benefit of the fundraising, but your profit on a race is probably only a fiver person anyway. So yeah. you suddenly get ten straight off the bat before anyone's raised anything. Actually, you're doubling doubling your profit for an event. Yeah, and that's for charities that put on their own events, but but also mm. for charities that that buy into you know some of the big city marathons or, or any of the, or, or any of the more you know professional commercial events. Um, charities can literally get a five, you know, sixty percent chance of getting a fiver um, from mm. from the entrance just by being associated with it. So again, it, it helps um, it helps everybody w- within the industry to 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 see the involvement in in uh, what's going on. And in because what moving on to what's what's kind of changed then? So we talked a lot about the impact of COVID, and um, I'm going to assume that no one who's listening to this has, has been at the run show, or that we'll just say it all again, basically. But how have you seen? Like, what what major changes have you seen in races that are happening? How often people are booking? The nature of races that people are booking. Like, are, are there any real outliers in there? Yeah, I, I, th- I think um, at the running show we we obviously discussed um, the nature of more of the timeline of when people are booking. You know, people mm. and, and entrants are are really looking and, and appear to be booking really quite late um, on in just before the event. Now, that's obviously no, notoriously really difficult for organisers because they have to plan this event. They've got significant costs to deliver the event, and actually they've got quite a large percentage booking just before it. Um, yeah. and, and we're still seeing that, but the makeup's already changing. Um, September 21 at Race Nation Technology was a record month in the history of the business um, with regards to, to, to bookings process. And actually the majority of those bookings are now actually 2022. So I think it, when, we, when we previously discussed it, it, it was a basis that, People were booking very late in in the event industry. Now, now actually, it starts to see that people are still booking late, 
but they're also really committing into next year, which is which is great to see because you know our if we look at our graphs and our charts, they're literally off the scale with regards to booking numbers um, and 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 everything that we're we're processing. That's as a result of bringing a lot of events over to Race Nation, absolutely. Um, but also, it's it's a basis that when we look at where they're booking, a lot of them are in 2022. And has, because we've, we've spoken to Jim from Rat Race previously, and, and they've changed their races anyway, but they've been saying actually people are starting to book big races, like big, big ticket races, um, because they just almost need something to motivate them and, and, and feel that that is something they've really missed more than a 10K or a, are you seeing similar focus yeah on... i think i think absolutely right i think um and i i think i think it would i think it would change i think it will flatten out and even out a bit in, into next year but i think right now um numbers are down in in a lot of organizers races and i think a lot of organizers would be honest and in, in, in saying that that numbers are genuinely down and, and i can only put that down to i think you know people have almost given up on this year saying look you know what mm. Certainly myself, I got my lockdown. I got myself to the fittest I've been for a long time and then the unfittest I've been for a long time. I got fit and unfit in, in that time, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I think, um, you know, people have almost just given up on this year. They've got booked what they've got. There's there's a significant amount of um, deferrals and, and, and still having to be honoured by organisers. And so um, I, I, I think actually you're – you're right the, the the makeup of this is let's book myself something to really push myself and train hard for and i think that gets the motivation going to, to then start looking at your your regular events some of maybe your smaller half marathons or, or your um mm. from, from that side of things because um you need that big one to get that that bug back so i i am um, i'm not surprised if if that is being seen to be honest and how how devastating is is this to you the number of races in the UK. Have you, have you got a sense yet of how many are going to make make it through? And of those that are really struggling or might not be here, do, do they tend to be a certain type of organiser or distance? Yeah, I, I, I think um, I, I, I think quite quickly the event industry. You know, listen, it, it was it, as as we all know, it was one of the first to go, and it was going to be one of the last to come back. Mass participation sport, groups of people no chance um and so the impact was was huge um with with regards to what who who's coming back or or the makeup of that i think all i can speak really is firsthand we saw some of our own clients we actually set up race nation events during lockdown and race nation events was set up as an event delivery arm to really try and support and save those events which weren't going to continue um and we bought um bought into the group a company called Immortal Sport, which is based out in Somerset, they had loads of events, and they were in danger of of, of not being able to come back. And and essentially, the 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 thought behind Race Nation events was, look, this industry needs awesome events to continue. And and if 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 some of the amazing smaller events come, or or, or um, any event, if if they had to, if they were to not continue. Um, it, it, it would it would be a travesty mm. for the industry, and so we set up Race Nation events to literally try and, and any event that needed support and wanted to continue, we we looked at them to try and uh, to try and to to try and save them, and, and that's what we did. So um, you'll you'll see that obviously we we bought in um, all of the Immortal Sport events, and we've le recently 
just had Ealing Hoff join join the group. Um, and again, that that was an, an, an event which openly and honestly said um, in quite the early stages, they didn't have enough numbers to put on a great event. And, and you know, all credit to them, they actually managed to deliver a phenomenal event. Um, I thought they were... That shows quite a significant belief then that, that things are going to bounce back, that you, the fact that you're, you're willing to take investment in, mm. in these. Yeah, from, from, from our side. But, but again, it, it was a basis that we... We, we didn't buy them. We didn't do anything. We literally just joined them in as a big group. We, we put some, obviously, some, some financing in place to be able to support them because the, the biggest risk to, to these events was cash flow. It wasn't that the events weren't good or they weren't successful. Mm-hmm. It was just cash flow in, 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 in that process. And, and events used up a lot of their reserves. And, um, and so the, the nature of, of cash flow and livelihoods would, would put mm-hmm. strain on, on whether it was worthwhile for the organizers. So, we set up this group to be able to employ the race director, whereas in the past they've been self-employed. Um, put some financing in place so they didn't have to worry about cash flow, because again, you know, you know, we're not going to take on an event that loses money year on year. But what we will do is try and support those events that are successful and viable to be able to to put on the same great events that they do. Um, and and hence Ealing, you know, that's another great example of an event that's just. So, so integral to the event industry, mm. um, notoriously been um, a really great event pre-London, um, a London 2012 legacy event. It, it again would have been absolutely shocking um, for, for for that to to not continue. And um, it, we, we're absolutely delighted to be able to play part of a, a bigger picture and, and bring that in to, to the group. I thought that was part of a bigger group. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I thought that was part of a bigger group, Ealing, kind of um, in a threshold or a similar no no it, it was it was owned by um ealing ealing cic which is a community interest company yeah. and um i think there may have been um potential deals in the past a couple of years ago that just didn't work um, yeah. but yeah it, it was owned by ealing ealing cic as a like i said community interest company that that essentially put the event on in order to be able to benefit the community of ealing um, mm. in, in from from the profits of the event and put it into it, and they actually grew this phenomenally successful event, where all their time was spent organising the event and um, what they wanted to do in the community, um, the volunteer board and the staff that they had, actually, they were spending so much of their time organising the event. It's better for us to be able to bring them into the group, allow the organisers. We'll obviously we now employ the organisers to to organise that event. But also now we share the profits of that event with the CIC so that they can still benefit the community, um, but they have none of the risk. And, and again, Ealing is a is, is a very expensive event to put on, phenomenally expensive. In, in fact, obviously, one of the only closed rows half marathons in, in three or four. Um, Are you able to say kind of how much an event like that would cost to put on? Or yeah, I, I think. Um, in in big round figures, it's it's probably in and around a quarter of a million pounds to deliver that event. And how many how many people is run that? Ealing, pardon? How, yeah, how many people run it? Because I've done it years ago. I paced it like maybe I think they, the um, second year, but they, they'll probably see um, they'll they'll probably see five or six thousand in there. So so um, mm. it's again you you can see how how it all works with yeah. Um, with, with with you know minimal staff um it's it's not it's not it's not all about big money you know and yeah these big and that's events, a huge amount of volunteers uh, as well wasn't it because 
e tools are pretty heavily crossover. Yeah, and it's that. it's so well supported. It's such a great event that it wasn't. It's and again, race nation events isn't about the the profit and the commercial aspect of these events. Mm. It's actually about saving them to to allow these events to continue. Um, because otherwise, all all that happened, a lot of these smaller events would disappear, um, mm. and and we would be left with um, o- only a handful of of city marathons that and and um, y- you know certainly the likes of Immortal Sport. You had the Salisbury Half this weekend just gone, a beautiful event, right you know right at the cathedral in Salisbury, um, so much potential there and and just so different. Um, events like that would 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 have disappeared. So. The hope is that we can just continue to support these to to stay around, mm. um, and like I said, the likes of Ealing, we can now again support that to stay, but also benefit the founding nature of Ealing Half, which is to benefit the community, and the community interest that it's got. And is there a kind of profile then that that, that you're looking for in terms of things to save? You know, because it sounds like there's that community aspect with it. Obviously, it's got to be profitable. Um, you know, are, are there any other kind of criteria that you would add into that that would make you, that, that would think, okay, this makes sense bringing this this type of race into the group, or anything that would exclude you know um, a race coming into the group aside from the fact yeah. that it isn't profitable? Mm. In, in answer to your question, no, we will literally consider to try and help and support anyone that needs it. Listen, I think it has to be viable. It, it, it does because it this is this it's it. It has to, to to make sense. It needs to have a, a bit of a history. You know, we'd like to see three years of operation uh, as an event. But other than that, no. Listen, you know, if there's events out there that needed help and support, and and um, and it could it it doesn't have to be in joining the group as well. It could just be that um, they may have lost volunteers that previously did all of their traffic management organisation or something like that. You know, there's so much scope. Of help that, that we can give with the experts that we now have in the group. Um, you know, there's there's already four race directors employed in there that can can literally be a, a sounding board to a race director that needs help. Um, and and I think again that's shown in in another acquisition actually that we made in Race Nation events was the assets of Rough Runner. Um, we had again we didn't really plan to be buying events. We planned to be supporting and helping them. But actually we we realised that rough runner had, had unfortunately gone into administration and I, and I think with rough runner it's the perfect example if 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 and and they're, if, if they're listening they're probably going to hate this if if they had come to race nation events prior to going into administration mm. it would have been the perfect type of event that we would have looked at and said these this event's awesome you know people absolutely love it it benefits such a wide-ranging um entrant runner anybody that wants to enter it benefits the community let's look at trying to support them um unfortunately that you know it, it was too far at that point they were in administration already and so we actually managed to buy the assets of that so essentially all the inflatables um because again it was one of those events that on, on the face of it it was too good to go um and so what we did is we we bought all these inflatables of six literally six shipping containers full of them um and have started again with it started from scratch did you have like a, a birth? Your first birthday party after that was like the most incredible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a knockout style birthday, uh, just inflatables everywhere. And I, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a few earmarked um, from from, from uh, people with, with with young kids. Absolutely, but right now I'll be honest, it it was packed up into six shipping containers two and a half years ago, soaking wet, covered in mud. It 
it was pretty grim in there because again, yeah. it was just it was packed away, ready to 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 move up to to the next venue, unpack and yeah. go again. And then they just literally got hit by COVID. So where they probably expected to undo the containers in two weeks later, they yeah. were undone two and a half years later. Um, Is there a chance, like, could could they have been eaten away? Or do you think it will be okay there? Like, would they have rotted? I, no, I think they, they're great. So we actually, there, there was a chance in, in absolutely all of this. You know, when when we picked up the, the, um, the containers, the um the guys that went to pick them up on on the back of the wagons they they were so heavy that we didn't have the keys from at that point they they thought they literally could have been full of bricks so uh, wait, wait a minute when it, so wait when they sold you the asset was it a sold to scene like just, just go <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not opening it you just gonna, was it in a, was it in a garage me? with that guy going he's gonna pay me for this i'll give yeah, you yeah. 10 i'll give you <laughs> yeah. yeah it wasn't yeah yeah it could have actually so it, it was um it was a little bit more organized than that, but not far from it in the basis that <laughs> listen, that we're the, the, everybody involved, we're, we're, we're all, all good people. And, um, and, and so we were, we, we were having negotiations on the basis that we knew on good faith, what was in there. Mm. Um, there was always a chance that they could have been full of bricks, but they weren't. Um, but then on, on opening it up. Yeah. I think you, you, at that point you realize that they had been locked up for two and a half years. Um, but we've had it all out. We've we've blown up a lot of the um, a lot of the inflatables because we've actually got an event on the sixth of November. So the first rough run is coming back, and um, so we've had to be out there blowing them all up, making sure that there are a few with some pretty significant holes in. I think um, maybe a forklift driver didn't quite make the pallet board and went went through the um, <laughs> through the side of some of them, but. Um, yeah, the majority are there, especially especially the, the 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 major ones like the, you know, the total wipeout type of obstacles with yeah. all spinning arms and lots of water, lots of fun. So um, yeah, we're really excited to be able to bring that back, and I, and I think that's another example of race nation events. Uh, in answer to your question, Jody, of 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 how what would we look at? It's literally any, anything that needs help and, and support. We we would try and do for the best interest best interest. I think of the industry to to have to have cool and fun events remain and and um well you need can you help us find a pub for the beer fun for one but um <laughs> and and in terms of uh but have you because two things that we we talked about and actually I've, I've heard from other race organizers as well um talks about at the show one of them was to do with really struggling for volunteers as well so even if you've got a sold out race where you've got the cash flow or you know, you're going to be okay. Actually, it's volunteer is is almost harder to get than a, a runner because that's you know people people book further in advance running races, whereas volunteering seems to be more someone who's got a free weekend and thinks I'll just do this to help out. Like, have you have you got feedback from races about how much that's affecting them and whether that could genuinely cripple? races because yeah. actually that's something that you you just can't create a pool of of yeah. volunteers i I, th I think um it, it's it's a really serious part of, of the industry which um a lot of organizers are seeing right now you're absolutely right in these you can you can organize events down to the nth degree but but volunteers play such a big impact um in the success because you, you, you genuinely you can't pay everybody to, to be there um 
and and we we did see this quite a lot and and actually in race nation technology and on the entry platform side we actually built a we built a feature which is essentially a credit feature which allows organizers to to allocate credit to an entrance account because what we started to see is organizers start to give away an entry or mm. um or, or something to to a volunteer to say hey look if you volunteer at this race you can come and race one of our races for free yeah. Um, but actually what happened there was the administration aspect of that became really difficult because an organizer would have 50 yeah. volunteers that they would then have to create 50 discount codes to, they'd have to manage who was going to. Yeah. Um, so actually we built this credit system into race nation. So organizers literally just go down the list and say, right, Jody, you volunteered at this race uh, and they, they, they gift them the 30 pounds on their account, but that, they don't have to put 30 pounds in an account. It's just a, it's just a fictional number. So that when when Jody then comes to book another event for that organizer, it says on 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 the race nation system, this organizer actually gave you thirty pound credit. Do you want to redeem it? Just like we again, we're all used to seeing on Amazon and, and and that side of things. And we built that feature to to really try and help organizers manage volunteer aspect to 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 give them, I guess, the opportunity and flexibility to offer more because that's what organizers are I think having to do more now. We're seeing and, you know, and a have lot those of, been have has that have you seen have you been monitoring what the typical value of a, a volunteer is in terms of what the races offer like mm. is it is it going up because people are, are struggling to attract volunteers more and, and actually the same question for have you seen race prices go up as well since we've come out of the pandemic yeah i, th I think um from from a volunteer point of view um I think as a start, organizers are now starting to offer something rather than the goodwill element to mm -hmm. it, i.e. the free entry in, in races and, and things like that. Certainly at Race Nation events, um, they offer, I, I think it's 20 or 30 pounds, it might, you know, about 30 pounds that they'll put on someone's account mm. um, to, to, to enter. Um, and so I, I think the volunteer aspect, they're now, volunteers are now starting to get something where they may not have in the past um they certainly will always get fed and watered and looked after very well on on event day um but the nature of free entry into other events or a hoodie or something um is, is really starting to happen with with regards to the prices of events we actually ran again some some surveys during lockdown of, of the impact of covid and um two 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 clear things came out of it one organizer said they were going to have to put up their prices um by a few pounds so we have seen um entry prices you know tick up by by two or three pounds um which doesn't sound like a lot but again you could argue that that's 10 percent of, of, a, of a half marathon booking if it goes up by three quid um and that and doesn't so, that doesn't feel a lot though as a customer like that no given I, I think people are in my head i was thinking five ten pounds would be yeah what a race should typically have to go off up yeah, at least for two or three years. Um, yeah, I, I haven't seen them go as high as ten pound. I'll be honest, and, and I think, and, and I think again, it's the nature of the industry and organisers. Organisers are, are are runners or, or are entrants. They they organise the events for the love of of doing the events. The past a lot of them, and so just putting up the price um, by so much, you, you don't see unless they have to. You know, they they really the organisers I speak to do have do think very long and hard about when they do do that and and i think that's also not just the COVID impact either i think prices um of everything post brexit era and 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 just you mm. know everything is, is creeping up 
Um, and, and so it's not just the COVID impact. And I, and I think there is an mm. element of recovery in, in those prices, but um, also just the cost of supplies as, as, as a whole. Um, and and even supplier terms have changed. You know, again, where you may have 30, 30 day terms in the past, they're all of a sudden dropping to seven or 10 days or even 50% upfront and, and things like mm. that. So, um, uh, you know, I, I don't envy the organizers that, that, that go through it day in, day out. And obviously I'm now seeing it a bit firsthand with Race Nation events. Um, but um, yeah, organizers are, are certainly seeing price impact on, on from suppliers and they're having to pass on some of it. But I, I do know that they, um, the majority of them think long and hard about, about doing that because of the impact on, on the runner or the entry. And, and going back to where we're talking about races now, integrating for volunteers some kind of reward do you think there's do you think there's a danger in in that happening for charities because when for a, a classic example that's often used is when nurseries have said will you will now charge you if you leave your child um late if you're late to pick them up and suddenly the number of people who are leaving their children increased dramatically because people suddenly saw it as a, a transactional thing um, rather than it necessarily being um, an emotional um, decision. And do you, do you think there's a, there's a danger in, the, in introducing the, the reward, particularly for, I, I think for, for races that aren't charities, yeah, absolutely, volunteers shouldn't be free. But, you know, when it's a, a race for life that is it's, it's purely created to mm. to raise money for a charity that actually it suddenly almost cheapens the the reason why someone would volunteer and, and makes them think they're more transactionally about how they spend their time versus previously just thinking this would be a nice thing to do yeah i i think you're all, we're almost finding ourselves in in two tiers of volunteer I think you know um, mm. you, you've got the volunteers that do it for the love of again, again within race nation events there is there is a, a core group of volunteers that whether you paid them on or, or you know whether you gave them that reward or not they would be there day in day out mm. um, wind wind rain minus temperatures they would they would be there um, and then you've got others other volunteers who you know let, let's take the, the the serious future athlete triathlete you know a potential athlete that, that wants a career in it even they want to race week in week out but might be training full-time might have a part-time job in doing so so actually volunteering at an event and getting a reward of, mm-hmm. of a free entry is actually very valuable and um, so, so, I, so I actually think we're starting to see almost two tiers of volunteers where yeah listen you know your your core volunteers your, your charity volunteers race for life um i think they'll always be there and, and i think all, all credit to them you know they are the, the the backbone of the events that allow the events mm. to take place safely but similarly the number of volunteers needed um is now supported by this second tier of volunteer that that does it maybe because they they need to to be able to um mm. enter all the races that they want to do and, and um you know I, I would love in the future to see a story of a you know, at something like the, the the Brownlee brothers or something that that again volunteered their way through getting free entries at, at triathlons and and actually um and and managed to find their way to some sort of GB success. I would love to see that happen somehow. 
Well, I mean, the fact that Alistair Brownlee's now doing Iron Man, he might need to volunteer to be able to afford it potentially. So <laughs> it could be, could be we see that with the Brownlee brothers. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and what would you say for the future of the industry then? Are there any things that you, you've kind of predicted or that you're already seeing that we might not be aware of or, or even realise would, would potentially happen? Um, I, I think mainly it, it was going down to the booking time frame. I, I don't think, first of all, I don't think anyone really predicted the impacts of COVID to go on this long. Um, I think that the, the, the booking impact, the delay um, has been quite significant. For, from going back to that survey that we run, again, we saw over 50% of organisers say that they were going to have to find more sponsorship or, or, or more ways of, of generating revenue at, at their events. Um, mm. So, so I think um, maybe the make makeup of commercial partners um, and and that side may change. But um, I think now we're, we're we're probably or hopefully coming to the end of the deferral and the transition process, where the end of twenty twenty one we'll start to see all those that did have deferrals from events that couldn't take place are, are therefore done, um, and twenty twenty two we might start to see a little bit more of a of a, an industry that we're used to, I think, with regards to the calendar, um, depending on what obviously some of the the, the bigger events do with, with their calendar. Um, but but certainly um, the calendar and the makeup of the booking process, we're, we're already seeing it get back to a little mm. bit more normality. And do you think, because there have been some some takeovers, some purchases, and we've seen, I think, Injil 24 or one of the other 24-hour races has gone to the big threshold or, or similar or great south but are there, have there has that been happening quite a lot because you know it's, it's quite actually hard to tell from a customer point of view if something's been sold or moved yeah i, th I think there has been there has been a few um again even just seeing what we've done in race nation events just shows that mm. that um you can do it on so many different scales um I, I, there's there's probably more to go but i i think um in honest honesty now we again we we don't necessarily see it until the last minute mm. too because um all, all of these deals do get done sometimes quite quickly um but i think the 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 nature of the bigger event organizer is that there there is um events to save and events that are worth are worth saving and, and so you we may see some more change but mm. to be honest we don't we don't see it overly quickly to be honest and um something not really related but that i just thought you might have an insight on so tough mudder for example you you weren't dealing with tough mudder were you it's a different organization that was doing their booking system um yeah yeah tough mudder. i'm not sure who they use now i think they use maybe active or, or one of those but previously i mean we've i've always been fascinated by what actually happened with tough mudder and i, I know i hear rumors that the the booking company booking platform basically refused to give them the money in advance of their races because they owed them so much money that i mean from your experience of being a booking platform and and from what you've seen of races like um rough runner which is very similar to tough mudder in some elements yeah. Do you do you get a sense that, that something like Tough Model could it have ever worked in their pricing model and the way they were running business, or what, do you think that was more down to the way they they managed things that they ran into issues? 
I'll, I'll be honest. I have absolutely no idea of the, the <laughs> of how the was was yeah. Um, yeah. But with regards to the booking platform side and and whether or not you're you're holding funds, what what I what I can yeah. answer, you know, is is easy. That side is we we process a lot of money for a lot of organisers, and the last thing any organiser wants is a booking platform holding onto funds. So if that was was true. Um, then it wouldn't be something that we we would ever want to do. You know, the longest we would ever hold on to funds is is two weeks, uh, and that's literally the first two weeks of bookings. After that, our organisers get all their money every single week, um, because as we know, again firsthand from Race Nation events, now cash flow is 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 an absolute killer in this world, and and so yeah. um, we 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 charge a transaction fee to process the booking, and it's not yeah, our yeah. money. And and so we will always um, we will always pass that on. So if you know, and, and different organisations, different booking platforms will have different payment terms. But because um, I I did hear we try and get it out there. Yeah, I did hear of I think it was Shane Oley who um, who organises like Dragon's Back and yeah. quite a few other big races. Um, I think he'd mentioned how the word now insurance was different um, substantially. For some races and and the the way the cash flow of of one booking system but i can't remember who it was so apologies shane if i've got this slightly wrong but have you heard of anything along those lines where for some races actually their approach to how they put in a race is now substantially harder yeah i think the this the nature of insurance is um a completely different world out there you you've got insurers who would insure in the market they've just pulled out of the market completely so mm. insurance has gone through the roof for a lot of organizers again based on the risk and, and the profile of the event um that's that's changed a lot so again i think that adds an element to more of the cost the event delivery cost um i did hear of of a number of booking platforms changing their terms during in recent times because again they themselves struggled um, which again isn't mm. isn't the right thing to do because they're as a booking platform we are essentially the custodian of an event organizer's money yeah. um, le- less a very small fee and and so that's why we will always get that to the organizer um i did hear of oh, so they changed their terms told, to potentially to in- improve their cash flow put, Potentially, yeah. I, I yeah. again, I, I just don't know for sure, but I do know organisers yeah. change their turn because m- maybe not necessarily to to uh, for the booking platform's cash flow. Because again, I, I would highly doubt any um, any booking platform would use an organiser's income as their own for their yeah, own business. Yeah, that, okay. that shouldn't. Yeah. But but I think what what happened with a lot of booking platforms is events really struggled and events cancelled and therefore the 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 consumer the entrant was protected quite a lot through the chargeback process by the mm. banks and product not received and, and and things like that and so when events were cancelled and certainly for those that had credit card bookings you know they 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 could speak with their bank and get their money back and so i think what happened is platforms changed some of their payment terms to protect themselves against things like chargebacks and refund requests that they were legally obliged to do. And so they just retained more of that organizer's money for when they were forced to process a refund, even if, even if the organizer said no. And, and so, I think that's probably why the payment terms changed. So at the moment, say I, I claimed back because I, you know, hang on a refund when I was due one or would see so they, they'd get the money back from you as the platform. And would you then have to, go to the organizer and say i know we've given you the money but actually you owe me this yeah yeah it's it's um th- there's a number it's of quite messy ways. isn't it 
yeah it's, it's it's a tough old it's a it's a tough tough nature in there but um so quite quite often organizers will have multiple events or they'll have um like i said mm. we're paying out every week and so if they if they process a refund there's invariably a balance due to them which that refund can be deducted from so it's again it's yeah. really nice and clean it's it's harder when you've obviously paid out and closed down an account um that then is due lots of refunds and and i think um that's also what's changed quite a lot because we as the booking platform obviously take the booking from from you as as the entrant you yeah. when you go to your bank you your bank says oh where who 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 charged you for it and it says mm. race nation but actually we again we like i said we we were just the kind of facilitator in in all of this um there, there are lots of of ways again that that over the next couple of years you'll see that change quite a lot where actually the organizer will be the responsibility there so the bank will will take it straight off them but but for now um it works where where we handle all of that and and again we've actually got a full team that look after all of that for the organizers just to try and make their life a bit easy because what we we want them to do is put on good events and mm. make sure there's enough portaloos and barriers and nice flags not not worry about um the chargeback process and, and yeah, the money yeah, we, yeah. we take on the data and the money side amazing well um we we did have quite a few questions from yeah, sure. but as mentioned because um everything's down facebook instagram whatsapp we no longer although um i think i remember one question which was quite silly from uh it was from by tony rickman he just asked um were you ever worried that race nation sounded like a, a white a right a right wing power party <laughs> imagine um no absolutely not absolutely not um it's yeah I, I think the nature of the industry that we're in um it's it we're we're, we're there we're well known we've we, we've grown it over the last six years to um to, to have a hopefully a great reputation in the industry and, and an increasing reputation in the industry but um no it's not something that crossed my mind i'll be honest when uh when they went through it because <laughs> actually uh get as it get jersey guernsey you could imagine a wicker man style a kind of uh <laughs> <laughs> type of environment yeah. being from from a, a little island like that but um but we'll probably move on move on <laughs> well well um thank you so much for for coming on the platform so for coming on the podcast if, if people want to kind of follow race nation or to uh kind of follow you and how things progress what, what's the best way for them to do that I think all, we're on all, all the all the social channels that that when they're online are, are there and pretty good. Obviously, Facebook, Instagram. Um, we've got obviously Race Nation, Race Nation events, and and Rough Runner. Um, so you can see how we how we're doing on all of that. Um, RaceNation.com is is the best way for organisers that want to uh, to have a look at the platform and, and that side of things. But yeah, if, if always happy to literally have a, have a chat and and speak to anyone really and and. Um, offer any help and support or guidance that, that they need amazing well thanks so much for coming to the podcast thanks for you know, taking it upon yourself to to save some of the races we love and good luck with the industry and helping out with races in the future thanks very much cheers oh yeah that was really oh we liked that that's good that's good I like was the, quite... um, the completely unrelated um, bobsleigh chat to find out another. <laughs> <laughs> we, are we literally just going to go through every 
every sport or profession that we've not done, get a quick insight <laughs> into it, and then and then randomly talk about running for fifteen minutes afterwards. <laughs> what's it like? What's it like I mean, operating a crane in central London? Go on, <laughs> you come on, listen, tell us. Oh yeah, and you run an ultra as well. Hey, if someone operates a crane in central London, I would like to interview them. Like, that's quite good. <laughs> that would be amazing. You weren't, you weren't on the episode with um, Anna Hannah who's a twin because we just talked about being a twin for about 20 minutes just because i thought that was really interesting oh, you, you, and, think and... Being a tw- you think being a twin's interesting being the child of twins is 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 different because my mum's a twin wait so your mum married your dad no your mum no, married my, her, my mum her did twin. marry my dad you're quite right yeah but you're so she, she married her twin no actually the, the truth you did actually, say the, the son of the, twins the truth well well you know what i mean you know exactly what i mean <laughs> although weirdly okay now this is weird my mum's twin sister married my dad's cousin whoa so they have a type so <laughs> they have a type so my cousins are both first and second cousins <laughs> <laughs> where are they from Somerset. What, cool. where the, no, 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 no. They were from Brighton via um, San Francisco. <laughs> but yeah, oh, it's very, very groovy. Very yeah, groovy. It's the summer of love. But yeah, that's um, it's funny, isn't it, when we do an interview with someone who we've we've already spoken about it at the uh, at the running show. Um, mm. But um, but it, it it was really interesting, just the model of who's taking over who now and. Mm. What is it going to look like? What I was trying to angle for was, are there any races that you wouldn't take over? Um, yes. Just simply on the basis, you know, are there... Because y- you think this should be kind of a shake... Although a lot of good races are affected, this should really be the shaking out of those races who, you know, have really, you know, abused their, uh, like, their customers who haven't, you know, mm. haven't delivered, that, you know, there's no loyalty shown towards them. Um, but then that I must be wrong because Iron Man still exists as an, as an organisation. So yeah, I mean they, that's because. But then they were bought out by Amos Sports, so that potentially is that them being in trouble. Yeah. Potentially that could be why. Um, and actually, I, I think it will also be not just the races that aren't necessarily good to their customers, but. Even with with everything in life, I think people who've stopped something for a long time, it just gives you that chance to reassess things and think, can I be asked? And there are a lot of races organised by people that, that don't make them huge money. They do it because it's almost their identity or their, their, their pet passion. And suddenly having a year of not doing it and they think, can I actually be asked to do all of this work when it's not for money? It's you know it's not necessarily got something that is pulling me back and so i think you will see a lot of these smaller races where people just can't be asked of all the hassle especially if they've been like some races race directors have been you know, treated quite badly by the public and oh yeah even even some um i, I remember when i was talking to um someone about one of the the big uh ut was it monte rossa or one of the the, the big uts where they got death threats about death refunds. Death threats are very in art. Everyone gets death threats for anything. Like, yeah. it doesn't matter yeah. what it, like, do you remember, I, I don't know whether you watched um, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, 
on Disney Plus. What's this is going somewhere. Falcon the Winter Soldier, which is a basic Disney Plus spin-off of of the Marvel things. There was a guy in there. So basically, um, uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched um, Avengers Endgame, um, well, Steve Rogers, Captain America, he's not Captain America anymore. Someone else is going to take over as Captain America. And so another actor came along who was the next Captain America. Um, it, and it was actually Kurt Russell's son. Um, but he, the actor was getting death threats because he was now the new Captain America, and people were saying, no. you'll never be Steve Rogers. You'll never, you're like, you're giving death threats to a real-life person on the basis of what their, act, their, their job. character does. I mean, that's, wow. that's the level we've got to in terms of death threats. Death threats are like the easiest things to give now. And why was, why was the Winter Soldier a Winter Soldier? What made them winter Because he was... Um, the Winter Soldier was... Uh, Essentially, he, Bucky Barnes used to be Bucky Barnes. Bucky Barnes. Well, he was from the 1940s. They had those kind of wholesome names. Um, yeah. He he was presumed he was he presumably died as part of a mission. Um. And but the the Russians, the Soviets, got hold of him and turned him into what they called their Winter Soldier. And so he he got a, a mechanical arm. He was indoctrinated. Um, he's basically some weird bionic man type thing. He looks incredibly like a young Mark Hamill. I, I, I imagine they're going to cast him as Luke Skywalker in a future um, Disney um, franchise. But um, but yeah, he was a Winter Soldier because basically he's kind of a Russian thing. That, that's me not knowing anything about the Marvel, comic, Marvel comics. Like, I imagine that there's a, probably a better explanation of why he is. That's what and I it, think it is. it's winter just because Russians are cold-hearted? Do you know what? It's a good question. Let, do you know? Let me. I, I've never really questioned that as to why it's. That's in the title. Soldier. Surely this needs to be one of the most. Well, he was. The thing is, the thing and... is, Winter Soldier. So Captain America: The Winter Soldier um, was one of the Captain America films. Well, he was found by <laughs> Soviet Hydra. Barnes was brainwashed and armed with a cybernetic limb. Why is he called the Winter Soldier? Why? Anyway, anyway. Why is Bucky do... called the Winter Soldier? It is, it is that reason. That is that reason. Since he was released, <laughs> they kept him in suspended animation and he was kept on ice for years. Like, 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 um, what was it called? Captain America? Because Captain America was entombed in ice. So that's really it. It was just cold. So yeah, exactly the thing. It was, it, it's, it's nothing cleverer than that. Wow. Okay. Um, definitely going to watch that. But, um, <laughs> so, yeah, well, it, it sounds, um, from what Will said, actually, it's not, it's not as depressing about the industry as maybe we'd hoped. It, it seems as if, particularly if, if he's saying that it, for a lot of races, it's, it I is more about... But I don't think I don't I don't think it's probably shaking itself out yet because one of the things that we yeah. we were talking about at the running show is that it's going to take a couple of years before all of those kind of referrals mm. and everything comes back and we still don't know you know the level of volunteering that's coming back either and I think that's going to mm. be that's what's going to that's like a cripple the kill it. the industry yeah. more yeah yeah you're right um and and actually it it partly is all well it's all about habits as well and suddenly if people aren't volunteering because they're so busy themselves. They might you just get out of the culture of it, um, and, and what happens if on the nation 
gets out of the culture of volunteering. It's and funny, that, isn't it? Because like Centurion, uh, for a long time, have built that sort of that. You were talking about the transactional element. Have built that transactional element into mm. uh, into that for a while, and so it's it, it's well bedded in, you know, and and it's probably got. I don't know what the kind of the percentage of people that just turn up for for the hell of it, and the percentage of people that turn up because there's a possibility of future race entries now, yeah. whether actually it's got to a tipping point where there's enough people who are who know that they can get a race entry um, mm. for, for you know for nothing. Although the good thing about hundred miles is that most people want to have experienced had had some experience of it before they raced it anyway, so you actually are almost in training some cheats some losers who <laughs> bother getting some kind of experience yeah. <laughs> but um in fact remember uh remember uh, the couple who we the story of their one of their first dates was doing lakes in a day and that's where Somerton came from they are doing a hundred miler together their first hundred miler. Oh, really? Are they? Yeah, centurions. So that is, who knows what kind of sexual positions they get up to in that race for. Uh, <laughs> like, which, <laughs> but, which one? Which centurion are they doing? Oh, it's the it's the in Reading. It's the the one with loops. I one of loops. Oh, the autumn, the autumn one hundred. Yeah, autumn one hundred, I believe. Right. Um, well, there we go, D. What do you think of that? Is that was that? As you expected, the the industry to be looking. Um, let us know. Let us at badboyrunning.com. And if you liked that episode, then I'm trying to think what other episodes were kind of similar. We've spoken to quite a few race directors through the years. We've talked to yeah, Jim times, Jim yeah. from Rat Race quite a few times. I spoke to Andy from White Star. That was really good. And um, James from Centurion as well. And we spoke to Mark Cobain. No, we didn't. Did we? No, we haven't. <laughs> no. We, we spoke to someone similar to Mark Cobain, someone who does very hard. We spoke, to, we spoke to uh, Jay at um, Sussex Trail Events. Yes, that's right. And someone else who does really hard events. But, but I wasn't interviewing that one, which is why I don't know their name, because I couldn't make it. Who was interviewing them? Was it me? Yeah, I believe so. We haven't interviewed Mark Cobain. <laughs> we should. <laughs> <laughs> talked about him a lot he gets mentioned he gets mentioned everywhere yeah he does he does um but if, if there's anyone you'd like us to recommend do that is so if you'd like us to interview then do get in touch with me either instagram or well, it exists still or email me david <laughs> at badboyrunning.com and um we we do go out and, and get the people and reply if not as to reasons why um and if you're waiting on me to do one of those two with your suggestion it's because I've kept it in my inbox when I next do my run through of booking people in. And uh, if you would, if you could leave us a review, that would be wonderful um, because it really helps us with the credibility of getting those guests on. And YouTube question answer below: Which sport should we interview next? And then somehow link it into running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's or which job? Which to... job? <laughs> which job? Uh, yeah, um, if Facebook still exists then you can head over to the Bad Boy Running Podcast Facebook group, ask three questions and join the conversation there. Um, the merch store is practically overflowing with merch, so no one can moan about it. Um, so head over there. There's loads of tees, loads of hoodies. We've Although we've sold out of all the XL and XXL, so 
Um, we're getting some more of that <laughs> stuff in, but um, but yeah, it's it, it's flooded with merch. So uh, get that on in time for all your lovely winter races. But actually, talking, I'm just thinking because I was I was looking at reviews. We're on 499 reviews at the globally. Oh, it's so close. Wait, 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 is that 499 reviews or 499 ratings? Oh, 499 ratings. Yeah, good point. But what I hadn't realised with reviews is that if you are in a country, um, you only see the reviews for that country. So yeah, that's right. Actually, it's quite. It it means that even though we're you know a, a, a hopefully highly regarded podcast, depending on your country, you might look at it and think, "Oh Christ, there's no one there." So we we've got a few drop downs that we can find out reviews for and i know at the moment for example we don't have any reviews at all in norway none at all so it means if you review as a norway it's going to be the most influential review of anyone who can review because yours will be the only one that they see whenever someone from norway looks at it so you have the power to determine how the whole of this nation views our podcast. So this is my cry. If you're a Norwegian and you, when you definitely haven't reviewed this because there are zero reviews, this is your week. And if you do it, we will definitely read it out. So each each week I'm going to highlight a country and then we're going to cut off our podcast from the countries where we don't get reviews after the request because you're not deserving. Off. I don't know if we can even do that. I don't, it's probably not possible, but we, can, we, need, we need a stick can, as much as we need a carrot. We're going to revoke our diplomatic access to those countries. We are, we are. Or at least stop our ability to see the reviews from those countries. <laughs> <laughs> but um, thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back next week with some other dude or dudette. <laughs> see you later. Bye 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 bye